0: You know what I want. I want to talk to Sam. Hello and welcome to the Raptors weekly podcast or extra weekly podcast, whichever you want to view it as. I'm Ro Sampson Folk. Joining me. A very special guest, Sean Woodley of, let me undo the scroll like Bugs Bunny Looney Tunes style and read off all (laughs) this stuff. Raptors HQ, Locked on Raptors, uh, Basketball with Katie Heindel, which you can subscribe to on Patreon if if you so please, if you so choose. Also doing announcing for CEBL, wrote We the Champs with Alex Wong last year, the celebrated and critically acclaimed book. Am I missing anything, Sean?
1: I think he got it all. It's uh, yeah, it's a lot of part-time jobs that almost make a living. Let's uh, (laughs) let's put it like that.
0: I think that might be the most accurate way to describe what all of us are trying to do here in this field. (laughs) We're trying to do a bunch of things and put them together and see what we can make out of it. But now we're sitting here. But to get back to your writing, which, as you said beforehand, there hasn't been that much of lately. You use the term squelching in your writing sometimes and (laughs) there's a couple definitions including the one you used which is to forcefully silence or suppress Mm -hmm. but did you know the first definition of squelch is make a soft sucking sound such as that made by walking heavily through mud (laughs) (laughs) i did not
1: know that but that i suppose could apply i did i definitely used it in my recap of yesterday's game And I suppose that could apply to the way the Raptors waded through the first three and a half quarters of that game, right? I I mean, I guess I didn't use it in the proper context, but uh, there there is a double meaning to that, uh, unintentionally. But thank you for making me feel smarter about my word choice.
0: Well, it, it definitely makes sense at the end because they did squelch the Nets. However, I thought when I was reading it, I was like, squelch is such a funny word. And when I looked it up, to see initially make a soft sucking sound as the lead in. I was like, wow, that's <laughs> that is something else. I'm trying to think of it like audibly, what does it sound like, Leia? Like that
1: I'm sorry, yeah. I just did that in the microphone. That's horrible. <laughs> but yeah, that's I a think, good way to turn off all of your listeners
0: right away. <laughs> I think you captured it. Yes, that was probably <laughs> the essence of a squelch or squelching one hundred percent. But when we did your podcast, the two-parter, We had to scale our fear, both for other teams and for the Raptors themselves, Mm -hmm. finding a counterpart from the Raptors past to fit snugly beside a future prediction. After starting out 2-0 in this series, where does your confidence sit with the Raptors? And you can scale that with anything you like, words, synonyms of squelch, whatever you want to do.
1: Yeah, I, I I like the uh, the openness to the concept of the question that I did not offer you on my podcast, so thank you for that. Um, the, uh, you
0: squelched me, Sean. You <laughs> forcefully suppressed me.
1: So are we talking confidence within the context of this series or the playoffs at large? Because I think it's probably two different things, right?
0: Well, let's do both.
1: Okay, so within this series... Like there's just like a lot of bravado right now. If I'm looking for a word, like it, it's just there's no way they're losing this series. They can play, they can squelch through three and a half quarters of a <laughs> of a game and still win pretty comfortably at the end. Their their defense, like very clearly, whenever they want it to work really well, becomes like one of the best crunch time weapons in the entire NBA. There's just a lot of bravado right now. I think from Raptors fans, from the Raptors themselves. I think they know that they're not really in any trouble in this series and it's also kind of like a weird discomfort in a way because this has never happened in a raptor series ever even the magic series last year was you know wrought by that first like you ring it in with that loss to the magic in game one and it's like oh okay here we go again this is going to be a nightmare obviously didn't end up being a nightmare by the end they win it in five pretty comfortably but there was that stress that is always kind of part and parcel with the Raptors in the playoffs and you don't have that right now and I'm having a hard time like honestly feeling like it's the playoffs just yet it's very new and strange and I guess this is just how like fans of extremely good teams feel all the time and it's I'm sure I'll get used to it and it'll become nice but right now it's like a weirdly jarring thing to see the Raptors just so easily outclass their opponent in a first round series
0: where is the turmoil where is the controversial refing takes? Where 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 is all of that right? Where's Kyle that,
1: Lowry laying a stinker?
0: <laughs> yes, part and parcel of the Raptors playoff experience. But today, or even just this whole week, not present. But actually, you brought up the game one last year against the Magic. The DJ Augustine steals the sun, has this incredible twenty five point game, hits the game winning three pointer. That was. Unbelievably, not truly, but in some sense, the precursor for a Raptors championship. Tell me why, Sean? Is that not the case for the Bucks or the Lakers? But if you do believe it is the precursor, then by all means, double down. But what do you think about that?
1: Oh no, I'm glad to talk about the frauds, Angeles Lakers, and the mil key Bucks here on the podcast. I'm I'm good to lean into that. Um, no, with with the Bucks, like I, I think there's a real distinct difference in how the Bucks played in their game one loss to the Magic and how the Raptors played in their loss to the Magic last year. Like, I thought the, Ma- the like the Raptors played fine in that game one. The Magic just had, like, this out-of-body experience. And maybe they also had that against the Bucks in game one where Vooch scores 35 and hits five threes. And it's like, oh, yeah, you know, th- they're never going to replicate this. But the Bucks had Giannis go 31-17-7 and or 31-11-7, whatever it was, and everyone else just kind of laid an egg. And if there's going to be a formula for how the Bucks fall apart in the postseason, it's exactly that because you're never going to get a really bad Giannis game. Even if he's defended well by a guy like Kawhi or something like that, like he'll still make things happen. And he's a, like a transcendent defensive player, but you're always liable to have a Chris Middleton going four of 12 or Eric Bledsoe doing Eric Bledsoe playoff things or Brooke Lopez becoming kind of a pumpkin like that, that could happen. And so, like the Raptors last year, them losing, I mean, it was so out of character for like Kawhi Leonard and Marcus Gasol, two former defensive players of the year, to have their signals crossed on a, on a final play. Whereas I think the Bucks having everyone but Giannis kind of let the team down and Mike Budenholzer standing so staunchly in his opposition to playing Giannis more than 35 minutes, like that stuff is just kind of symptomatic of what goes wrong when the Bucks lose and, and you know, what could potentially derail them four times out of seven in a series. And so, I think it's a little bit more alarming than last year's Raptors loss was for sure. Do I still think they're going to win the series probably in five games? Yeah, unfortunately. But I think the the things that went wrong for Milwaukee in game one are very, very repeatable against better teams as well, where it won't take an out-of-body experience for the Heat or the Celtics or the Raptors to beat them if the things that usually make the Bucks great in the regular season aren't going so well in a playoff game. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and maybe an opportunity since you brought up Mike Budenholzer and his lack of changeability. We can jump to another point, which is Jacques Vaughn, who changed everything after one game, completely swapped out the defensive scheme that they were running, hardly any drop defense, and they just went straight for Jared Allen, roaming above the break, switching a lot of the time, and if not switching, then hedging. What did you think about the adjustments he made? Because I was really impressed by his coaching acumen and the player's ability to enact those differences, those changes. Yeah, I think the switching, like, that's a thing that
1: when Allen's not on the floor, they can really just kind of do easily because everyone is small. And it's not like you're giving up much in terms of, you know, poor matchups if you are switching everything in that situation. And I think the reason I was surprised to see it early on from the Nets is that Like Jared Allen's not someone who really looks to me like a guy who can switch out and really sort of hang away from the rim. And I mean, the Raptors kind of bludgeoned them at the rim when Allen, you know, wasn't quite up to speed, you know, in a few instances here and there. But I thought for the most part, he did a really good job of keeping in front of Van Vliet and Lowry. And also the fact that, whoever was switching on to Gasol seemed very, very unworried un- about Gasol, kind of allowed them, all right, here, let's go give Allen some help and kind of just send a couple of guys towards the driver in a lot of cases just because Gasol was just very out of sorts in that game. And, and I think they were totally fine yielding threes to him or, you know, long-range twos to him as opposed to letting Fred VanVleet and Kyle Lowry just walk to the basket. So I thought Allen did a great job. You know, it kind of... When you do that as well, it kind of limits the effectiveness you can have with Pascal as a ball handler because having Allen switch onto him is a lot less favorable than having any number of guards on the team, like Joe Harris or whoever, switch onto him. And so uh, I, I think it, it just, you know, it, it worked pretty well. You know, I think the good move as well for the Nets was just getting rid of Rodeon's Kouroux playing a lot of minutes. Um, Bad person, bad basketball player, and I'm glad that he kind of showed his ass as a bad player in the in the games uh, in 1 and 2 in the series. And Timothy Luwabu cabarro who was a guy who, back in, I think, the Jakob Pertl draft was... I, I really wanted the Raptors to take him ninth, I, uh, mostly because he played for Megalex, which is, like, the coolest team in Europe. Um, but, like, obviously, things haven't worked out super well for him throughout his career with Philly and OKC and all that. But I'm glad to see him kind of finding a place where he can just kind of cook... And he was really good in that starting role at the four. And so, yeah, Jacques Vaughn deserves a ton of credit. I think it was Josh Howe uh, who pointed out yesterday that it really, really sucks that he's probably not going to get that job because he's earned it. And he's done a really wonderful job with a team that has not a whole lot of talent. And obviously, coaching a team that doesn't have its superstars is very different than the sort of balancing act that it takes to coach a team with Kyrie and KD and potentially whatever other stars they try to lure or trade for. But... I think Vaughn has done enough, and like he showed it in that game too, that he should have that job. He should be the leader in the clubhouse for it, and it's going to be a real bummer when he probably doesn't get it, and it goes to like Jason Kidd or some uh, very unqualified but famous person like that.
0: Yeah, well, twin powers activate. I also really liked Luog Cabrero in 2016. I think he went 25th. Obviously, Pertle went ninth. So we're in, uh, we're symbiotic. We're in, we're in synergy in that way. <laughs> The only the only way I got to see that through was in like NBA 2K, where yeah. I'd always get him on the Raptors and he would basically turn into whatever he was against the Raptors, just heaving three pointers, uh, runs out in transition because he when he was with X, he could throw down like his oh, athleticism yeah. was a large feature of his of his draft profile. So I yeah, was cool also that we thought the same. I was also really excited by,
1: like, as he fell in that draft, I think the Raptors picked 27th where they got Pascal. And I was like, oh, maybe TLC's going to come and and be the 27th pick. And then obviously they got someone much better, which is nice. And and TLC didn't even make it there. But yeah, that was uh, a night of Timothy Luawu for me before he added the cabaret to make uh, broadcasters everywhere wince.
0: (laughs) Have you ever been to a cabaret? I always think of cabaret when I see his last name.
1: I'm not a fancy enough lad for that. No, I have not been to a cabaret. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I went to one in San Francisco, and it was like one of the best things I've ever been to. It was really cool. And I don't know if that's like me just espousing white culture or not, but <laughs> I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was great. But as you brought out with Jacques Vaughn, it is tough to look at a guy who ostensibly has earned a coaching job. He's he's had them batting above their average, punching above their weight consistently since he took over. He's nuanced in how he looks at this series. He's been changeable and diligent in how he's commanded like the ma- the matchups and the adjustments and might be the same thing that happened last year with JB Bickerstaff in Memphis where he was I thought did a really great job. But then Taylor Jenkins, one of you know Mike Budenholzer's acolytes or lackeys, got the job there afterwards. I, that it is interesting though to think about how he might coach uh, scrappy upstarts like Lavert and Co versus Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and a somewhat curmudgeonly but altogether very lovable DeAndre Jordan. Mm-hmm. It's it's definitely weird to think about how that's affected. I, I wish he could keep the job, though. I think he's done a fantastic job.
1: Yeah, and, like, count me among the people who's surprised by it and, like, who made jokes when he got the job to replace Kenny Atkinson considering I'm pretty sure when he was with Orlando he was considered the worst coach in the NBA, if not, like, very near the bottom. And, I mean, I guess that speaks to part of the idea of, you know, the like the whole retread thing. And, hey, this guy di- didn't do so well in his first shot. But probably learned some things and, you know, was able to get a second shot. I just feel like oftentimes retreads in the NBA end up being like Jason Kidd or like famous people who have big names and some semblance of success attached to them. Whereas I wonder if maybe the more like fruitful retread road would be a guy who maybe didn't have a very talented roster was viewed as being not very good but that head coaching experience probably helped him in terms of sort of recrafting the way he approaches the job and you know on his second opportunity it kind of clicks and you know obviously we're like 12 games into Jacques Vaughn with the Nets so we can't really make declarative statements we can't make declarative statements about anything in the bubble because it's all so weird and new but I do wonder if Maybe that's like kind of a road that people look at. Hey, this guy was a coach for a uh, very, very bad team, and maybe he was perceived to be not so good. But just having that head coaching experience, I think just even listening to what Nick Nurses said about him coaching places, like just having that experience is so valuable just to figuring out how to do the job. And I, I bet for a lot of these guys, you know you you get it, you get the job with a bad team you sort of wash out and then you never get that opportunity again when maybe you would be more equipped to be a good coach the next time that opportunity arises it's just because you didn't win 50 games with the Orlando Magic in 2014 you get kind of completely thrown out of the the pool of coaches that gets repeated whereas there's probably a lot of guys in the league and certainly will be for the next foreseeable future as it's like the same 35 names that kind of circulate uh, you know with a few new faces every year but, you know, I, I, there's lots of guys who don't deserve that second chance who just get chance after chance after chance. And it's just it's totally different than the arc of Jacques Vaughn right now.
0: Yeah. And also that I think everybody together, front offices, media, and fans, the m- overwhelming majority have no idea. We have no idea the excruciate details that go into being a coach because there was, you know, like, Ostensibly, how do you say Dwayne Casey wasn't a better option to keep with Kawhi Leonard in tow than a new coach like Nick Nurse, for example, right? Mm -hmm. And so, with that situation, like he was a celebrated assistant coach, but for, let's say, like the people on Twitter or people who are commentating on coaches, like before Adrian Griffin had his first coach and before there's been this whole controversy involving the domestic violence allegations and all that kind of stuff and the alimony and child support stuff, people were saying, oh, yeah, he's a big-time assistant. People might be looking to poach him. But people on Twitter are saying that who don't really have connections, and it's like, well, where did you hear that? How do we know he's a good assistant coach? What have we seen mm-hmm. like besides what we're told from the front office? And even when people are head coaches, separating the performance from the coach or even viewing them as two separate entities... How do you do that tangibly? It just seems like it's such a tough job to actually cover, to actually analytically look at and say, okay, these guys are good. Obviously, with Nick Nurse, it's been super easy to commentate on it and say, okay, he's doing things other coaches aren't, and the Raptors kick ass. They whip ass, as it were, <laughs> a, Sean, a Sean Woodley colloquialism, as it were. But a lot of coaches, for example, you're talking about Jacques Vaughn like with Orlando Magic, How the hell were we to know? Like, it was Mm. just an uninspiring magic team. Whoever's coaching the Hornets right now, like Alvin Gentry was hailed as a genius, an offensive genius, but he couldn't get things to go in New Orleans with Anthony Davis or Zion. And now he's out on his ass, too. So it's like, how do we actually view this? Because when they're assistant coaches and we say they're geniuses and then they become head coaches and we say they're bad. And then it's only when it translates that we say, oh, yeah. We were totally right about this guy, which obviously we get to do with Nick Nurse now, but very few people get that opportunity. It's so convoluted. Oh yeah, it's impossible to judge like
1: who and who is not a good coach. And we're all just kind of masquerading as experts when we try. And I think it's important to acknowledge that and just like understand what you don't know, which is pretty much everything when it comes to coaching. I think really the only thing that I... I think I actually believe when it comes to like philosophy behind coaches is I'm really starting to buy into the, it doesn't matter where, as long as you have, head coach experience, like you're going to be better equipped for the job than someone who is like a lifetime assistant or something like that, just because you do have to manage personalities and you do have to think about politics within the team in a way that an assistant never does. And like, I'm thinking about this from, um, you know, the Nick nurse thing where, you know, he coached in England and the G league and all this stuff. And like, yes, he's not managing superstar, you know, half billionaires, but, there is a sort of balancing act that goes into any head coaching job, regardless of the level. And so like the kind of guys that I kind of get fascinated by is like up and coming coaches. Now are the people who kind of, you know, are head coach in the G league or something like that. There's a guy right now on the Raptors, uh, two guys on the Raptors staff right now, Ryan Schmidt and Charles Kissy, who work with Raptors 905, who just got head coaching jobs to bring the CEBL into this. They were head coaches for the CEBL in Guelph and Hamilton. And like, just talking to them about how, it's so different being a head coach and all the different things that you don't consider when you're an assistant and you're responsible for development or for the defense or whatever it is. Those things are so valuable to being able to be a head coach. And I think we saw with Nick nurse last year, like, Oh, Hey, well, you know, this guy has a lifetime of not really being sure what his lineup is going to look like every day of managing people as a head coach and, and, and you know, trying to figure out egos and stuff like that. And he was kind of perfectly suited, it seems, to taking over a team that had the circumstances around it that, that that Raptors team did. Whereas, you know, you give it to some sexy assistant like Ime Udoka or something like that, someone who was also in that conversation. And there's no saying how they're going to handle those person to person interactions because they've never had to do it in the way that a Nick Nurse or someone who has had a lot of head coach experience, regardless of the level that is, they've had to have, like, because it's just like, it's part of the daily job that it's just not for an assistant.
0: Big shout out, Raptors Republic alumni, Victor Rosso. Hell yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Coaches, yeah, CBL, but also Jama Malalela. So guys who are coaching head coach jobs, I think that's a cool thing that the Raptors have done too as far as their organization is, like you said, if people are like you looking at head coaching as more of a merit than assistant coaching because of all the intangibles and tangibles that come with it, way harder to be a chemist, a like a psych- a psychological chemist, let's say, for the team in that space than it is as an assistant coach. So I I guess providing opportunities for the guys in that way too, which is maybe the sign of most good organizations is upward momentum for people who join in. And uh, yeah, I feel like that's a good place to leave the the coach talk. But yeah, that was a little uh, bit unplanned. Of, <laughs> but good. Yes, unplanned. Uh, The Brooklyn Nets and Raptors are playing, I hear. But we're not going to talk about that, actually, Sean. What we're going to talk about is, has your time in Nova Scotia added any perspective to your life? A new way to do a small (laughs) thing? A new way to do a big thing? Has it changed you in any way?
1: Interesting. Um, yeah, Yeah, well, as we speak right now, I'm looking outside the window and there is a
0: deer about 10 feet outside the
1: window. So that's cool. Um, it's, 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 it's put me in touch with nature, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, oh, nothing. I like, so for background, like I come to Nova Scotia pretty much every summer. My fiance's parents very luckily have a, uh, a, cottage out here that we just kind of drive and escape to whenever we have the chance, um, which is lovely. And, and like, this has been an interesting one cause I've been in isolation for 14 days because of the Atlantic bubble. So it's just been like hanging out at at home and not really going outside very much outside of like taking a bike ride or something Um, and just being away from human beings, which has been interesting and new and not really the way we typically kind of go about these trips. But I will say I have learned about exercise while being here uh, (laughs) because the first few days sitting around laid up on the couch, not doing much, but playing board games and stuff and just kind of having my body seize up from inactivity that was counteracted by me tuning up the old bicycles that are in the garage here and uh and hitting the road a little bit and i feel wonderful apparently if you exercise you feel good, which I was not much of a practicer of in my life at home during quarantine in particular and, um, you know, kind of for a very long time since I started working at home and being inside all the time. And so I, uh, yeah, I've kind of gotten back in touch with exercise. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that has been the biggest change. Like I'm already planning on buying a bike when I get home and becoming a cycle boy which is something I never envisioned doing because it required work. But as it turns out, uh, having your body move and your muscles uh, have to do work and your blood pump through your body at an accelerated rate makes you feel so much better. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what I'll be taking with me home for sure.
0: Well, certainly I agree with what you're saying. And to call upon Lewis Zatzman, one of my very good pals, he he drew a, a comparison between a writer and a Wizened twisted apple core that that he thought that's how we ended up looking when we we would write for so long and i think that's that's probably close to accurate and wonderfully and deliciously descriptive of course but i'm the same as you there also just to mention bike dude sean woodley is like a great turn by the way like to add to your <laughs> resume of things that you do being like a bike dude and you can always just kind of work it in the conversation. Like, and whatever model of bike you buy, refer to it as that. But the shorthand of it, like, oh, yeah, the 35X, you know, I've been I've been riding it for however long and just try and sneak it into places. <laughs> I think that's the, the high potential. That's the high ceiling version of where you're going. But also on top of that, I agree. Exercise. Very important. I've been trying because I started in the past two years, I would say, doing the podcasting and writing thing. And you know, I am akin to a twisted, wizened app core at times. And mm-hmm. also before that, I did physical labor from my work Same. and I basketball all the time. So now I'm getting adjusted I'm getting adjusted to doing more so, just basketball for my exercise, and realizing that that might not be enough to keep me in the shape I'd like to be in. So having to go and do like isolated exercise, like workouts, which I hate. God, I hate <laughs> working out. It's so boring to me. It's just like I want to do something that's like there's stimuli, like there's a bounce back, like some sort of activity. If I have to just go to like isolate and work out body parts, I get so bored so fast. So I definitely I empathize and I recognize I'm very proud of what you're doing, Sean, because it's me hopefully in a couple weeks.
1: Yeah, it's. Um, I would also say another nice part of being out here, in addition to the exercising, which again is just kind of life changing. After like you, I went from doing manual labor and walking around for like six hours a day for my like previous day job to uh, spending the last year just confined to the couch, basically every single day for six to eight hours. Um, you know, it, it, so that's been nice. But the other thing too is. Coming out here at this like weird time where there's sports going on at a time where there's usually not sports going on, and this is usually like vacation time, and you know, I don't have to think about basketball for like a month at a time. Having basketball where I'm also not working has been kind of a revelation because so often basketball is work. And it's nice to, you know, have, like, wonderful people like Katie and Vivek who can fill in for me on my own podcast while I watch a game and drink two Moscow Mules during it and don't have to worry about, oh, I have to do a podcast after this game. I have to write a recap. I know I wrote the recap on Wednesday, but, like, it's, for the most part, I'm just kind of watching these games as a leisure activity, which is kind of what got me into it to begin with. And it's kind of nice to not have to take notes or... Even, like, feel like I have to be tweeting during a game. I can just watch the Mavericks and the Clippers and put my phone away and only jump out to make one playoff p joke. And that's all I need, feel like I need to be online for. It's been a uh, – that has been, I think, outside of the, you know, <laughs> my heart not feeling like it's going to explode on account of cholesterol for the <laughs> first time in a year. Um, that, that's been, I think, my favorite part is just getting to watch basketball kind of stress-free and like it's the the fun hobby that it used to be for me before work took over
0: yeah that's well you do a reaction podcast and that's where you and i were definitely similar in that way that adds a lot of work to every single game and people appreciate the reaction podcasts. i think the appropriate amount i'm glad people like them so much i'm sure you're the same way but before i when I was just staff writer on Raptors Republic and then took over from William Lou, how I looked at games was different because I was picking up more macro stuff to write about. And like Mm -hmm. every once in a while I'd pick something up micro, but now every game I feel like has this microscope on it for me. And I'm just trying to analyze it the best way possible and be as charismatic as possible. And that's 82 times plus the postseason. It's so much work to take on. And it definitely does completely revolutionize how you view basketball, because basketball, like you said, is work. And even more so when after every game, you have to saddle up and break it down for me immediately after and humble brag. But like I'm the fastest gunslinger. I'm the fastest podcast gunslinger in the West. Oh, on question of my God. It's it's so much work, man. And yeah, it is, it does completely change how you view basketball. So I definitely, I totally get why you're so happy to just oh wow, this game, I can just watch it and then wipe my hands of it? Are you kidding me? It's yeah, Yeah. it's fantastic.
1: This is not to say that I don't love what I do either, right? Like I absolutely love doing podcasts about games. It kicks ass, but it is kind of nice, especially when it's the playoffs where it's like a time you want to kind of just be a fan and kind of like grip the edge of the seat a little bit. It, It is it's a nice it's again, it's vacation. Like I, I don't want this to be what it is forever because there's a reason I got into wanting to cover basketball and talk about it every day. It's because I enjoy it, but it is kind of a different perspective on watching the games where it's like, oh, yeah, not everything I need to be doing right now is like I can look at my phone and miss a couple possessions and not feel like I'm doing a disservice to the listener. It's uh it's kind of a liberating feeling. But again, I'm looking forward eventually to it coming back. And I picked a great time because, like the Net series, as much as they're plucky and fun I guess if you like that kind of thing it's not one that I was like stoked to dive into the nitty gritty of the matchups or anything I'm pretty sure uh, I wrote a tweet that was like the Raptors have good players the Nets do not and that I felt was like a sufficient preview of the series whereas when you get later into it when I'm back kind of in the regular swing of things I'm so looking forward to breaking down a Celtics matchup or a Bucks matchup or whatever it is it's just uh, yeah everyone needs a vacation once in a while
0: as we sit here, you know, basketball writers, basketball podcasters, that I think everybody complains about their work, no matter what it is. I certainly don't mean to come off as, like, a whiny kid or whatever, but <laughs> definitely I, the same as you. I, I appreciate so much what I do. And, yes, like, it is writing or talking about basketball. Like, that's my work. So it's it is it's very good. I'm very happy I chose this, and I'm pursuing this as a career, definitely to back up what you're saying. But you did bring up the series once again, and you said good players versus ba- bad players, plucky upstart, if you like that type of thing. Well, I do understand that. I'm going to throw us back into it because I have one player who I have a great amount of love for. He made the top 40 in my top 100 players list, the, the over 25,000 words top 100 players list. It was Mammoth, and Karis LeVert sits in the top 40. And I, because he's this player that i'm seeing this series i've been a Levert, a staunch overt supporter for a long time now what was your idea of him before the series and what is it now has it changed uh, a little bit so i mean i kind of often
1: will kind of bristle at people who nba internet tell me i must think is good i don't know what it is maybe just like a contrarian like must, sports
0: Sean. i say so <laughs>
1: but this I this applies like more often to players who aren't actually that good like K.J. McDaniels was one of them. I think David Nawaba is like the current guy right now. Where it's like, I don't know, if he was actually good, he might uh, play for a good team once in his life. I don't know. Um, sorry to disparage. I know he's injured right now and not playing. But still, he that's kind of the, one of those guys where it's just like, okay, we get it. You watch basketball deeply and appreciate a good defensive rotation. That does not a good player make. Um, Levert's obviously a little bit different. He's a little bit more accomplished for sure. I still have like my... my my skepticism about him a little bit just because I'm not sure what he is in the construct of a team that uh, is actually good and has high intentions, high aspirations. Um, I I think I made this comparison and maybe it's not totally fair because he's been a bit of a better three point shooter, but he has not been that with sort of the the peak ball handling duty that he's had recently. He kind of reminds me of Demar a lot in that like very good player. You're happy to have him on your team for sure. He can be your second best player and you can be a very good team but I do wonder if his inability to be a great off-ball player is going to cut into his effectiveness. And, you know, if he is on the ball, what's your limit as a team, right? Like if he ends up in like a trade for like Bradley Beal or something, like what's the most the Wizards can hope to be with Karis LeVert as their, their, their lead option? And I keep forgetting that John Wall plays for the Wizards, so apologize to, to, to John Wall here. But I, I, I think, you know, it doesn't have to be the Wizards. It could be any team. If he is a guy who doesn't shoot a terribly great percentage from three, who is a very good playmaker, obviously he's a better defender than DeMar is, but like if he's going to go five of 22 when he's tasked with being the main offensive player like he did in game two, you know, is that someone you really want to build a championship team around as one of your top three players or something like that? And so. That's my concern there. I, I'm not really sure where he fits in the long-term scheme of things for the Nets. And Maybe he doesn't have to fit. Maybe they just trade him this offseason and he becomes the number one somewhere else and he's someone else's cap limiter or ceiling limiter or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, I, like he's obviously very good. He's a great passer. I didn't realize he was as good a passer as he is. And he keeps finding TLC on that back cut like, uh, every single time down the floor that they run it. it. It just looks beautiful. And he's got that really sort of quick release to his passes that I love. But I don't know if he's someone who I'm like scared of if you know, he's your third option, just because I think he's probably a little bit limited if he's off the ball, if that
0: makes sense. Interesting. I did not expect you to douse my, uh, my enthusiasm for him. But points that, <laughs> that are well met, certainly. David Mwaba went to Cal Poly. That's the school he went to. And I, they had a very loose, very loose interest in me playing there. Like, so loose, I didn't go and play basketball there. However, comma, the year I didn't go, they hit two consecutive buzzer beater game winners to get into March Madness. And David Nwaba is from that school. How insane is that?
1: That is, uh, that's one of those weird small world basketball things that you love to see. And uh, I, don't I think it's very him. cool.
0: Yeah. And that, I mean, I'll, I'll tell <laughs> David Nwaba, we're almost teammates. And <laughs> yeah. I was
1: worried I was disparaging your good friend, David Nwaba, which uh, I'm relieved to know that I was not
0: <laughs> potentially in a in another life. Good friend, David Nwaba. So heresy of the highest order, Sean, how dare you <laughs> slander my friend, my my buddy, my guy, David Nwaba. But here's the thing. Paris has left the bubble and will not be making his return in this series. He's right. been a big deal for the Nets, a very, very big deal. And you're talking about, you know, Lavert being able to find TLC, and he has, and you drew attention to that back cut, which I also noticed because it was in this morning's issue of Minute Basketball. But also, he's been finding Joe Harris and Garrett Temple. Joe Harris is a huge part of that team, as currently constructed. What do you think about him leaving and how does that change the outlook of this series, if at all?
1: I mean, I think it basically rules out the idea of the Nets even winning a game off the Raptors. I, I think Joe Harris is so essential to the Nets because the Nets play this kind of bullshit, no talent basketball. <laughs> like, all due respect, but like, that's what they play. That, like, we don't have good players, so we'll just take a million threes and hopefully we hit enough to win a game by accident. And Joe Harris is the best player at doing that. And they don't have him anymore, which is bad. <laughs> that's, a, that's my analysis of it. He is like the second or third best player. It's Levert, Allen, and Harris in some order. And to not have him and his shooting, which is really the most threatening thing on the floor for the Raptors to deal with, it, it really, I think, cuts into their ability to variance it up and try to get a game off the Raptors. You know, They, they played a really good game uh, against the Raptors in Game 2 and they still couldn't pull it out. I don't see how they're going to play a better game than they did on Wednesday without Joe Harris in the lineup. So I think uh, if he's not back, this is going to be over on Sunday pretty comfortably, I think, for the Raptors.
0: Yeah, I think I would agree. Also, he had some sort of talent for guarding Matt Thomas, so maybe we get a Matt Thomas game. That would be kind of fun. Hey, recognize like real recognize real, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The uh, he's I don't know if... What do you think his effective field goal percentage was last year if he had to guess on open shots? Because Joe Harris, Matt Thomas's was, yeah, Joe Harris. What if he had to guess? I don't have the numbers, by the way. This is all conjecture and guesswork.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, It's one, it's like a, a percentage point less than Matt Thomas. It's enough less, I guess, to not have Alex Wong feel conflicted about who to throw his support behind. Let's put it that way.
0: Yeah. Because Joe Harris is a pretty cool dude. He he is uh, alluring in some ways, I would say. But, Sean, I feel like we've touched on all that we need to touch on for the series. And now I'm going to move us on to uh, perhaps a, a more frustrating, infuriating, and serious topic, which is Masai Jiri and the Almeida Sheriff's deputy. And that whole situation, because it was horrible, they finally released the footage, and we see... I don't have it written down, but from my memory, Masai Ujiri walking towards him, credential in hand, halfway out of his pocket. Usually enough, I would think, to indicate to somebody, hey, I'm grabbing my credential, and especially somebody of Masai's stature, that that probably isn't even necessary. Combine that, the fact that Masai couldn't get on the floor, with the fact that that very stadium, a kid who printed out fake courtside seats and went to over 20 courtside Warriors games that year because he was white and they never asked him to show. They never scanned his pass. That very stadium wouldn't let Masai Ujiri on the floor and it led to an altercation where the cop pushed him twice extremely aggressively before Masai claimed, hey, I'm the president of the Raptors, what are you doing? Pushed him back, a scrum of sorts ensues, Kyle Lowry comes over, Masai Ujiri finds another way onto the court. We finally see that happen. What are your thoughts on that, man? It fucking sucks. (laughs) Like, it is
1: so infuriating to watch and even more so to think about how Masai feels watching that back and how he has felt to be part of this bullshit, like, quote unquote, scandal or whatever the hell we're calling it for the last year plus. Uh, Like, it's just... It speaks to everything we've been talking about for the last four months when it comes to defunding the police and the just unadulterated power these dudes tried to wield. It speaks to just like this guy being impossibly bad at his own job. If he is paid to be on the sidelines at the NBA Finals, maybe you should have a bit of an idea of the major players involved and what Masayu Jiri looks like when he is the president of the team that is about to win the title in your arena. Like... How do you not know who Masai Ujiri is if you are any sort of non-negligent bullshit con artist cop? And it also, like, there's just so many things to it. I mean, imagine what this cop does when there aren't 20,000 witnesses. I know this has been a point was made by a few people. I made it myself. Like it, it, it's, it, it, Like, it, it boggles the mind and it's horrifying to think that this guy felt like he could shove the president of the Raptors with 20,000 witnesses with impunity and try to flex his power. And imagine what that guy does when there are no witnesses. And it is a black person in the Oakland area. And imagine the fear that must engender in somebody. It it just, all of it sucks. It, It robbed Masai of what should have been the happiest night of his entire career, winning the thing he's been striving for his entire professional life. And instead, it's been a year plus of dealing with this bullshit from this cop who is clearly just a grifter. He's got fraud charges in his past. He is trying clearly to milk whatever this situation is to get paid out of it. And I'm glad the Raptors are not giving into that. I'm not I'm glad they're not settling. I'm glad they're using their financial might to fight this for everything it's worth. And I hope this clown who apparently has not worked for over a year still making 224k a year never works again. Like it's just it's so, so frustrating and makes me so sad for Masai, And it just, again, highlights everything we've been talking about. Defund the police. Look into why that is and what that means because this is exactly why we're having this conversation. It just happened that it took place in a place where, you know, things couldn't escalate to a more nefarious level. But imagine what that guy or any other officer who feels they have that kind of power— does outside of the limelight of the literal place where the NBA Finals just ended. It just it boggles the mind, but also doesn't because it's like the most predictable shit ever if you look at the history of these types of things.
0: Well, yeah, and to your point about defunding the police, not only because this guy is abhorrent, but that the his colleagues, his the people who work above him would have had access to this video for a year and still asserted, that he was in the right, this protecting of the boys club, at least in how we view them broadly, of course, there are more diverse police forces and all that kind of stuff, but still can be known for the same type of engendering the same type of fear in minority groups in I guess it would be disenfranchised groups, seeing that kind of stuff. And just knowing that they protect who's there regardless of their actions, especially in a case like this, where it's so clear, it's it is one of the easiest to digest things we've seen in the media with a high-ranking person where you can objectively say, wow, just because he's black. And Leo Routens was very salient when he made mm-hmm. this point when he was on television. Said, "I," He said he got on the floor fine, and he's like, nobody asked me for anything. Why is that? Why do you think that is? Because I'm white and he's black. And in this case, it basically, it's hard to try and, for those who would, you know, work in whataboutism to try and find other reasons. Like there are people, well, actually, I'm not going to quote people on Twitter, but there are people who are willing to try and detract from what Masai did and try and, you know, prop up reasons for why the cop might be doing what he's doing. But in this case, it is very straight across the board. This is just firmly a racist act by somebody who was overly aggressive, overly confident in their ability to disenfranchise someone that they saw as lesser than. So it's, it is one of the most, dif- most disappointing things, seeing Kyle Lowry hug Masai Ujiri and Masai's blank face because he's still in shock at what happened to him on, as you said, one of the greatest nights of his life, if not the greatest, is insane. I can't believe that happened, and it is all the more, it is punctuated by the times we live in. And the fact is, we've been living in these times for so long, and we'll continue to live in these times without radical change in some way. And the fact that Masai Ujiri finally gets his due after a year of having to deal with this, it's, it's insane to me. I agree with you yeah. on all fronts.
1: I think um, if there's any silver lining to come from this, and look, there's no silver lining actually because it shouldn't take this for the conversation around defunding the police and changing the way that prison systems and police structures are set up. Like It shouldn't take... A high-profile incident like this caught on video to make people realize but my hope is that maybe there's someone who's been on the fence or like doesn't understand what defunding the police is or think well we need the police for this this and this it's very important even though if you do any of the research like it's not like you can very very easily take a lot of money from the police and put it into things that will better benefit individual people in society like maybe this instance maybe a raptors fan who was on the fence maybe someone who's an nba fan who was on the fence unsure what the messaging really means maybe they look at this and say oh this is exactly what we're talking about and this is why i need to call my mayor and you know leave an email with my with my mp or whatever it is about defunding the police and the need to do it because it, again it shouldn't take this it's like it's kind of like when you see, you know, issues of d- domestic violence in whether it's the NBA or whatever the league and it takes a video for people to really perk up and say, "Oh, that's bad. It shouldn't take that." But Maybe that's what some people need as, like, the kick in the ass to realize, oh, this is what the conversation is is exactly centering around. It's not about all these other sort of frilly things on the side that people who are arguing for defunding the police and the Black Lives Matter movement aren't even arguing for right now or asking for. Like, this maybe hopefully recenters it for some people, and that's the one positive I can take away from this, other than the fact that hopefully— this cop will never work again because he doesn't deserve to. But again, I don't have a ton of confidence because the protection in place for people like this is so deep and runs so many layers that there's a very good chance this guy will go like totally unimpugned after like clearly initiating this with Masai. Hopefully not. I I wish I had more faith in. The justice system to figure this thing out properly and have a just end to it all, but um, yeah, it just overall, infuriating is the word I think most people have had on the tip of their tongue. It is the most apt word I think to talk to discuss this. It just I feel for Masai. I feel so bad for Masai that he's had to deal with this, and I'm glad that. The video is out there, although the Alameda Police County or Police Department will say, hey, don't believe what the lawyers are saying in the form of a literal video from the body cam of the officer. It's just makes me mad, dude. Makes me very, very
0: mad. Well, even to your point about hopefully it turns the tides for somebody because it is so objective in the way that it's presented, like you said, that the video speaks for itself. It doesn't need much of anything. As far as context, but you see, well, Thomas Kecko wrote a piece for Raptors Republic a couple of days ago, and it's called Cheering for the Raptors These Playoffs Means Not Forgetting to Say Their Names. And it was kind of bundled around the social justice movement, the civil rights movement that the era we're in currently, and what that means. And the response to it in the comment section, for example, was very, very toxic, I would say. A lot of people saying, keep politics out of sports, all this kind of stuff. But you would see similar people a couple days later saying, oh, my God, I can't believe they did Maasai like this once that surfaced. So maybe they just needed a figure to empathize with. And ideally, it wouldn't need that. You, you don't need to see somebody and say, OK, now it makes sense to me. But if it if that is the case that seeing somebody that you look up to who is by all means a great person treated so badly by the very things that are relevant in what are what is being protested if that helps change the tide for you then good and hopefully more work is on the way because we're all work we're all a work in progress and in especially this type of stuff you need to keep learning in most cases you need to read like i know it's it's not easy to hear but like pick up a book about this kind of stuff because it's, it's intimate in the way that it grabs you. It's intimate in the way that it tells you about it. Or an audiobook if you don't like reading. It's just it's important to be aware of the things that are going on in these times and that's hopefully Masai's incident if they're, like you said, there in a silver lining but if you're trying to pry one with, with all of your might that would be it, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the pandemic, right? Where you'll have people who it's like, oh, it doesn't affect me, so I don't really care about it or whatever. And then it takes someone that they know getting sick and they're like, oh shit, this is real now. I mean, again, it shouldn't have taken this long for people to get wise to what the conversation is about. But if someone who does have an affinity for the Raptors and Maasai sees this, that becomes that personal touchstone that hopefully kind of convinces somebody of the validity of the entire thing, which again, shouldn't have to take this long. It's not hard to read. Like you said, it's not hard to pick up an audiobook, but maybe this is the thing that pushes someone over. So here's hoping. God,
0: it makes me mad, dude. Let's cross <laughs> our fingers. Yeah, it's it's infuriating. But I guess we'll leave off there. Sean, is there anything you'd like to plug you'd like to say on your way out before we uh, before we cut the end of this off?
1: uh no um i mean defund the police not another black life has a lot of excellent resources uh if you want to follow them on twitter uh not another blk i believe is their handle if uh if you want to go to they have like great resource pages and things like that for ways you can donate ways you can learn more all of that stuff highly recommend Them, um, in terms of personally, you know, you can listen to Lockdown Raptors right now. Vivek and Katie are doing a wonderful job filling in and uh doing some episodes for me while I'm gallivanting about the Atlantic coast. Uh, (laughs) and uh, basketball with myself and Katie Hondle as well as a podcast you can listen to. We have a Patreon page, we're doing a special Patreon only trivia night on. September the 14th, if you want to be part of that. We're going to have some fun media friends who are the ringers for each team. If you want to join in in the fun, it'll be a blast. And uh, 4 bucks gets you into our Patreon page as well. So, A Basketball on Twitter, two H's, uh, patreon.com slash basketball with two H's. And you can find me at Woodley Sean, of course.
0: Well. Well done. You, you're an expert at, at the self plug. I got to say, I'm horrible <laughs> at it. I, I never have anything prepared. I stumble through it. Like when I was on your podcast and I said, Twitter sucks. Don't follow me on there. But then realized in my at the end of my plug, I had to plug my own Twitter for people to follow for the links and stuff. So something I have to get more practice at. But Sean, thank you so much for coming on. It has been an absolute pleasure, man.
1: Thank you for having me, man. I'm glad we could complete the second half of the home and home.
0: Maybe maybe we'll be able to do one after the Raptors win it all. We'll see.
1: I'm down. I'm down. That, that, I mean, even if they lose, why not? A chat with you is always a time well spent.
0: Yeah. Playoffs in review with Sean and Sam. But anyway, listener, that's it for you. That's it for me. That's it for Sean. I hope you enjoyed listening. One last thank you to Sean. But whether you're getting into this in the morning, or at night. Have a blessed day, stay safe, and goodbye.